Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shauna C. Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Indianapolis Star journalists Tim Evans and Robert Shear to the show. Tim and Robert were part of the talented and dynamic investigative team that uncovered the prolific abuse, mental, physical, and sexual, and surrounding neglect orchestrated within USA Gymnastics. And we are so happy to have them here today to talk about that investigation and the resulting stories. Welcome, Tim and Robert. So happy to have you today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, so let's, you know, let's get right into it. This wasn't either of your first rodeos, clearly. You've been, I mean, you've been doing this work for a long time and not just that, but specifically you have been part of um, investigating crimes of a sexual nature before this, right? Yeah, I've reported on child abuse and sexual abuse since about 2000, um, off and on, but, but more, more so than not. Mm-hmm. You too as, as well, Robert? You know, as a, as a general, Tim's more of a specialist. Um, I'm more of a generalist. I'm a photojournalist at the Star. And in my career, I've covered just about everything from the very beginning of when I, you know, got my career going in the, mm-hmm. in the mid early 90s. So, yeah. Unfortunately, there's probably, I mean, there's enough right now in Indianapolis to keep you busy. That's for sure. So, you know, journalists, they get leads all the time and I, I don't know that many people really understand this, that once you start getting into it, that it can fall apart pretty quickly if you can't find any information to verify or corroborate some of the things going on. And it's actually not completely unlike what I do as a lawyer. I always tell people if I could put what I know happened in one hand and what I can prove happened in another hand, they're two very different things. And I think that that happens a lot during investigative journalism and there are things you can't report on. But here, clearly it became clear pretty quickly that this was something that you're going to be able to get into. When is it that your team realized that this story was different and there was a lot of meat here and there was a lot to go on? This started with a tip, like a lot of stories. It sprung out of another story that Marissa was working on about um, failure to report in some incidents involving uh, sexual abuse in schools. And she was talking to someone, a source, and he, he told her to look, if, to look at a um, case in Georgia that would reveal some problems with USA Gymnastics. And to our editor's credit, they put her on an airplane that night, sent her to Georgia. She came back with a, a printer box full of court records, copied everything there was. And after going through that for a few days, quickly realized there was some very damning evidence in there that showed USA Gymnastics had a policy of not reporting sexual abuse uh, to police or child welfare agencies as required by law in Indiana and most other states. And at that time, Larry Nasser wasn't even on anybody's radar, right? You're just finding out that they have this policy that is completely crazy that they don't turn anything in unless it's verified in some, unless a parent reported it or the, or the child reported it, right? Otherwise he deemed it. And I use this term very loosely hearsay, and it would just kind of get tucked in a file cabinet and go away. Right. And in in those court documents, there were 54 uh, notice of 54 of such files 
sitting in the office here in Indianapolis. And so we uh, got into a court fight to get those. And Robert? Yeah, and that was uh, the timeline of this was very early in 2016 is when Marissa got the tip, went down, brought the documents back, brought the reporters, uh, Tim and, and Mark, along pretty early on, and Tim, uh, Steve Berta, rather, being the investigations editor, was brought in. Then I came in, I, I kind of call myself the fifth Beatle. So <laughs> I came in in the late springtime of, okay, so the reporters are working. We've got a dedicated editor. How do we visually tell this story? And so I come in and really at that point, Larry Nasser wasn't on the radar at all. It was journalists sitting in, we called it the war room, mm-hmm. with a lot of different names up on a lot of different whiteboards, kind of going through spreadsheeting, looking at things, looking at documents, seeing where police reports had been filed, motions had been filed, that sort of thing, and, and just kind of ticking it off. So- I want to piggyback on that a little bit. What was the atmosphere like in the war room once this all starts kind of unfolding and the phone starts ringing? We were really looking for a situation where there was cause and effect, where we could show that this policy had an actual damaging effect on children. So we were backgrounding more than 100 coaches. And at this time, again, it was mainly in clubs. It wasn't, we had no idea that the Olympians were being abused. We had no mm-hmm. idea it was Larry Nasser and John Getter, former national coaches. So we were digging into these individual coaches. We found four cases where someone had reported the coaches to USA Gymnastics. They had failed to take action, and those coaches went on to abuse children. Jeez. I think that's when we found out we had a story because, again, it wasn't theoretical that, oh, they, this had this policy, but there's no proof that it's hurting children. We had concrete evidence that children were being hurt by this policy. And that was probably in April or May of 2016, where we realized that, where we had parts of a deposition that where they stated the policy, uh, they acknowledged their policy. And those two things really put us on the path that this was a big story. And we, you know, continued to drive from there. Had there ever been any other tips relating to USA Gymnastics before this happened in 2016? There had been a lot of reporting about sexual abuse in gymnastics over the years going back to the 90s at least and maybe before that but they were individual one-off cases it was a you know a a lone wolf coach or that's the way it was presented it was Mm -hmm. a bad coach it was a bad official but nobody ever looked at the systemic situation or the policies of usa gymnastics uh, that that allowed this to continue to happen and that's what i think made our our investigation different than the individual reporting we had reported on marvin sharp a coach from Mm -hmm. Indianapolis, Mm -hmm. uh, in 2015 who was arrested and for sexual abuse and then child pornography and committed suicide in the Marion County, Marion County jail. So, you know, there were stories like that, but there was never this big step back sweeping look. It's interesting. I think a lot of people that I've spoken with who've watched the documentary and who've read the stories there, it's hard for them to believe that something on such a scale happened like this. And, you know, it's not unlike what has gone on within the Catholic church. And it is absolutely so prolific that it almost is hard to believe that it's actually real, especially when you're looking at an organization like this was so revered, not just nationally, but globally for producing these world-class athletes and, you, I, I remember when I was watching the documentary, I was like, oh my gosh, like the sexual abuse is only a part of it. 
what you guys uncovered in there was such a culture of child abuse that was completely accepted by everyone. Absolutely. One of the four folks, early folks who we were looking at is a guy named Ray Adams. And he was a coach who did work in Missouri. Then he got accused of inappropriate behavior, moved over to Illinois, then went to Ohio. Every point along the way was accused, uh, sometimes girls as young as 12. In one case, uh, Jenny Brannon was someone that we talked to in Missouri who had made the accusation, but it never went anywhere in court. So he bounced out of at least a dozen gyms, ended up in Florida where he was uh, caught and ultimately convicted. And he's in jail now serving a 20-year sentence, a federal sentence. It's just absolutely insane. That was probably the most egregious example that we found of what we called passing the trash, where they would allow these coaches to quietly leave a gym to protect the gym's reputation and go somewhere else and continue the harm. But we found many instances of that. But Adams was, was our kind of poster boy for that because he went so many times and there were so many clear allegations against him. And again, USA Gymnastics didn't stop him. None of the independent gym owners stopped him. And the young girls paid a terrible price. It's so such a prime example of why what you all do is so important because, you know, every time I see something like this in the news, I think, okay, people are going to, they're going to learn from this. They're going to understand that if you don't just own it here today and you push and you pass the book, you pass the trash. I like that a lot better actually. And and they keep going to different places or whatever. It's going to be a hell of a lot harder for you down the line than it is today. You know, notwithstanding the fact, any moral objections to the fact that you are enabling a child molester and people, you know, Tim, we talked about this the other day on a panel we were on together. I, they think that they're somehow protecting the integrity of the organization, but they're not. They're making it worse. And that's how things like this continue to happen. And you've got hundreds of girls. I mean, if you add up all of the girls and women that have been through that organization, and we already know Larry Nasser, how many victims-ish that he has. We have all these coaches that were caught. I'm convinced there are tons that were never caught. We're looking at child sexual abuse on a level, like I said before, that is akin to the Catholic church, I think, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, absolutely. I I was just going to say absolutely. Tim referred to the over 100 folks who were being looked at. And there were people that, frankly, we just couldn't nail down the details to go to press with them. And that's so important that, people understand is we can't just take an accusation and run with it and publish it in in the newspaper. We need to be able to have something concrete legally that we can we can rest on to be able to defend it. You had talked about what we know versus what we can say. And gosh, we had a we'd have a heck of a lot better story if we could print everything we knew. And mm-hmm. But that's one of the things we, we did with the, with the survivors, and I think was really critical for us and it helped build momentum. Is the survivors knew from day one when they dealt with any of us that they were in charge. They were driving the story. They would tell us what they were comfortable with. They'd tell us when to stop. We talked to many, many more victims whose names never made it in the paper because they weren't comfortable with it. And, you know, that's certainly, that's no knock on them. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody comes to their, their peace and in their own time. But 
it helped us understand that we weren't dealing with a few isolated instances. Probably for every person we named in the paper, we talked to four or five others who either didn't, weren't ready to have their name published quite understandably, or who, you know, we, we truly believe, but we didn't have enough paper documentation to, to feel safe legally. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, it's just the tip of the iceberg and, you know, I've heard different estimates, but for every one, there's probably 50 more, maybe more. So, you know, the, when you extrapolate it out like that, it's just, it's just unfathomable how many victims there are out there. It truly is. And to your point about, you know, what you can actually print, especially in this bullshit era of fake news or whatever, and because there are these sensationalists, and I say again, news channels that publish all this crap. And so then they, it, they think everybody in the media is not doing the right thing, which is absolutely not true, clearly. And I think that people forget that, that you have to be unbiased in your reporting and you have to have more than just, sometimes I think you have to have more than we do <laughs> to prosecute a case, to be able to print it and for the public like that. And I think you bring up a very good point when you talk about how the survivors understood that they were in charge. You guys employed, I don't even know if you know you did this. I think I did it for a long time, didn't realize I was doing it. It's a trauma-informed interviewing technique. It really is understanding that they are in the driver's seat. And so like Robert, you said that a lot, you're more of a generalist and you've done all kinds of different things. Do you, did you see a difference in how you all handled the sensitive nature of interviewing these survivors versus even a victim of a different crime or just like a consumer victim, um, something like that? Yeah, absolutely. It's first off, I want to thank all the survivors who talked to us and, and specifically who let me come in with a video camera and audio recording equipment and a reporter with me and were brave enough to tell their stories. That's if, if I'm done with journalism tomorrow, this story is the single most important thing I've ever worked on, without a doubt. And as, as a visual journalist, my job isn't just to control the way it looks and the way it sounds. It's to control the space and to make sure that the survivors are comfortable, that People are in the room if they want them in the room, support folks, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, kids, that sort of thing, because Tim said it right. They're truly in charge. So we came in really with no agenda of here's what we want to do, but the subject is clear. We're going to talk about Ray Adams. We're going to talk about Mark Schiefelbein. We're going to talk about Larry Nasser. And then we would go from there. Sometimes the interviews would take an hour. Sometimes they would take two hours. Sometimes they'd be over multiple sessions. Sometimes uh, in one case, there's a woman in Tennessee. We went down there and, and as a visual journalist, I ended up going with all three of the reporters on the interviews. So I ended up interviewing more folks in person myself. But we went to Tennessee to talk to the Robinson parents of... Uh, young woman named Becca Seaborn. And we didn't think she was going to be there. We're in the basement interviewing the parents. We see uh, Mark and I, who's the reporter, noticed a person standing on the stairs going up to the top. And it turned out that Becca Seaborn was there and ended up coming down. Oh, wow. 
didn't want to be interviewed, but posed for a portrait, which I made. And then we went upstairs and we're just standing there, you know, shooting the bowl like you do about the weather or something. And I don't know, I thought one of her trophies on the counter was, I don't know, reminded me of something else. And um, we just started chatting and I said, could I ask you a few questions? Mm-hmm. And she said, okay. And we ended up doing a 10 minute interview on the wow. spot, completely unprompted, but she was very comfortable with that. And we stay in touch to this day. Oh, that's awesome. I just add that Bob's probably one of the best interviewers I know. It doesn't matter whether he's a reporter or photographer or what, whatever they call him. And he interviewed probably more of these victims in person than any of the reporters, like I said, wow. because he was going out and following with each one of them. The one thing that stood out to me time after time was that many of these survivors, most of these survivors were so anxious to out their abusers. They were far more comfortable revealing to us than than we were to asking them about it. And the other thing is, you know, I'm an old guy. I I call up a young woman out of the blue, tell her I'm a reporter and you know, ask her to tell me about the worst thing that happened to her in her right. life. And then they start pouring their hearts out to us. And it's just amazing, but it shows the depth of their pain and the hope that they put on our shoulders to try to make a change. And that, that was one of the things that really shocked me was just, it wasn't nearly as hard as people might imagine to get these survivors to talk. And they, often they talked about in more detail than it embarrassed me, um, you know, but they were, they were so desperate for help and for stopping these abusers. Well, it is a testament to you all that they chose you and that they were able to open up to you because you're right. It's not easy and not everyone can do it. I can tell you that for sure. Just having been doing what I've been doing forever, you would think that the people who have been doing this sort of work would have figured it out by now, but some people never do. So, you know, you should be very proud of yourselves. And frankly, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation today if it weren't for you guys. And nobody would have, I don't, I mean, I don't, he gotten away with it for 30 years. So I truly believe that if you guys hadn't blown the lid off of it, I think we still wouldn't know. I don't think anyone would. Absolutely. Um, Larry Nasser is absolutely the poster child of this whole investigation. And we did not anticipate that. And, and Tim, wasn't it within an hour or an hour and a half after the initial story published that Rachel reached out? We published on the 4th of August, you know, in the morning. She saw it in the Louisville paper. It was published in a number of Gannett papers in USA Today. Mm-hmm. And her email, I think, was timestamp 1042 a.m. <sighs> wow. So it was that. And then, then within the next two weeks, we heard two other people independently tell us the same stories. Their stories were so similar, in fact, that it made us suspicious. You know, is, is this a concerted <laughs> effort to bring down this doctor? So we background our sources. And, you know, none of them have history of filing complaints or alleging mm-hmm. sexual abuse. None of them had any kind of contact before. Jessica Howard and Jamie Dancher may have been at one meet together years ago, but Jessica was in rhythmic gymnastics. Jamie was in artistic gymnastics. They didn't know each other. As they realized, as we talked to them, we let them know we had other people who were making the same allegations and they wanted us to put them together. We purposely kept them apart mm-hmm. and explained to them, you know, we, we don't want to, mix their stories, pollute their stories by talking to each other. We, until we get you fully interviewed and our first story publishes, we'd prefer not to identify the others for you, but then we'll help connect you afterwards. 
because we want to keep each individual story pure. But I mean, the same thing, no gloves, nobody in the room, no warning uh, before he went from massaging exter externally to internally. And it was, it was just, it was shocking that the similarities and that's when we knew that there was something up there with him. It was like that aha moment. You're like, oh my gosh, we've already got three people right now who do not know each other, who are telling the exact same story. How many are there? Right. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's, we still had a, a, an uphill battle to our editor, you know, as you understand the legal ramifications, there were, there was some shouting in the war room more than a few times. And, you know, he would say challenges, you know, we, we, we can't, but our reputation, we can't put the paper out on a limb like this on the allegations of three women. We need, we need records. We need proof. And Rachel had medical records. It was, you know, I know I, I'm pretty quiet usually, but at one point I, I shouted at Steve. I said, but he's not wearing gloves. He's not doing anything according to the protocol that the experts are telling us. He goes, that's not enough. Get some more. And so and we went back and got more and, and it came out. And again, Steve's a wise editor and did a great job sh shaping the whole project. And I, and I want to be clear, it, it was during that whole period that Tim's describing, it was not a situation of us not believing the survivors. Mm -hmm. It was always a case of, has a police report been filed? Has a legal motion been made? Has something that we can sink our teeth into and refer to in the story to defend it? Throughout the whole process, as Tim, Mark, and Marissa were writing, and Steve Berta was editing, and, and I was working on video, we definitely had everything lawyered. Our internal legal was looking at everything, every comma, every word, every bit of audio that I had. Can we defend it? Is this something that we can back up? And if not, we won't use it. So we were very, very meticulous and, and thorough. And Nasser was much different in that case because, again, it's much easier for us to report if there's a police report, if there's a lawsuit been filed. That gives a, us mm -hmm. you know, journalistically a foot in the door. And as this was starting out, there was none of that for Nasser. So it was a, you know, a leap of faith. Fortunately, as timing coincided closely with Jamie Dancer's lawsuit as a Jane Doe. But, um, you know, going up to that, it was, it was a real challenge. And we were dancing along the line that, you know, you do a lot in newspapers and didn't have that coverage of a public document, a, a mm -hmm. public allegation, a legal claim. I can't imagine how frustrating that is when that happens. I'm, I've been working with another Indie Star journalist recently on a sexual abuse case where this guy is prolific. He's had unfettered access to children for a long time, and he's been charged on one. And we've talked to at least 16 different people dating back all the way to when he was 14 years old. And it's a very bizarre set of circumstances. That's a, a whole other can of worms. And I think maybe you guys know what I'm talking about, but a lot of that, it's not going to be able to get printed because either the survivor doesn't want that, which again, just like you guys said earlier, that's their decision and completely understandable. And then there are just others that you can't verify. Do we know it happened? Sure we do. But is there enough there to be able to print it in the paper and be it be legally sound so that you guys don't have any liability on that end? No. And that's real. That's frustrating for me. So I can't imagine how, it is, how frustrating it is for you as journalists. There, okay. there was a lot of sleepless nights, yes, and, and, and fretting as, as on, on the night that the story was going to print. You know, we, we fact-checked everything to the nth degree. We printed out our stories, and sometimes all three of us were writing on a story, and we would challenge each other. Okay, in this paragraph, we assert this. Where's the proof? So then we'd have to show them the paperwork or the document. 
we'd scratch out with a black sharpie. We'd go to the next sentence. I mean, we went sentence by sentence, word by word. And it was an essential one to be accurate and be fair. It was essential to cover us legally. And it was also essential because even the smallest air suddenly is a crack in your armor mm-hmm. and people can say, well, look, they couldn't even get this right. How yeah. can you trust anything else they had? So, you know, there, there was a real emphasis as, as there always is in our investigations on that fact checking and, and down to the nth degree and the tiniest detail, because we don't want to have some small things spoil a much the bigger picture. And I can't, I have to think that there's some pressure and not that they're putting pressure on you. I have to think you feel some pressure to know that these survivors trusted you with the truth and trusted you with the task of disseminating that information to the public. So you want to make sure that you have everything in a row too, because like, you don't want to hurt their credibility because you accidentally, you know, do something here or there, whatever. I think that I'm glad that we're having this conversation. So people understand truly how much, what the process is for you guys to go through something to actually print it because it is a lengthy, intensive, thorough process. You don't just throw things out there. I mentioned the other night, that was probably the the most pressure I felt and it was never applied. It was pressure that I put on myself, but you you could pick it up from the survivors that they were so counting on us. We were their last hope. You know, Rachel had made some comment that we couldn't help. She was probably going to try to put it behind her and go forward. And so many others saw us as their last hope, their, their best hope to get some justice. And you know, they never said, they never said, well, I'm counting on you. Don't let me down. It was that internal pressure, yeah. internal desire to, to do what we could to help. That was the most pressure I felt in on that project or, or anything in my life, really. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I want to switch gears just for a second here and talk about Tim. I know that you were one of the first people, because just like you said, when you guys were doing this, the police weren't on this at that point in time. And that's a whole other can of worms too. So we, we can table that one for another day as well. But you're one of the first people who ever actually spoke to Larry Nasser himself. You went up and you interviewed him. And I really enjoyed learning and hearing about that in the documentary. What was that experience like for you, you know, sitting face to face with this guy, you know, all of these things and asking him these questions. It was a surprise that I get to talk to him. And, and I think I'm the only reporter that ever confronted him about these allegations after they came out. You know, we, we were dividing up tasks and Mark was dealing with Rachel and Marissa was dealing with Jamie Dancher in, in California. And I was looking into the medical expertise and the practice. And my other kind of throwaway task was send out the email and get the no comment from NASA's attorney. Yeah. And, you know, that's what like we expected. <laughs> yeah. And it was going to be, that's my afternoon. I'll write this email. So I started emailing NASA and I sent an email to him at his work and in a home email I found in some gymnastics material. And the next morning I came in and I had two emails from him. And it was like, the first one was, I'm sorry, these young women misunderstood me. Can you come and meet me? I'd like to explain. And I was like, holy You're like, what? crap, you know, that never happens. And then the other one had come in about 30 minutes later and it said, I've spoken to my wife and it'd be best if she thinks it'd be best if you met me with my attorney. So quickly I got back and said, who's your attorney? And got on the phone with his attorney and he surprisingly said, yeah, let's talk about it. It wasn't the attorney that took Nasser's case to trial. It was an attorney he had previously, and I don't think he was aware of the situation or Nasser had been honest with him. I think he, and well, I've talked to him since, and I don't just, you know, he didn't know the whole story and wasn't getting the, the truth from Nasser. But he, he took me, he invited me to, um, we actually went to Grand Rapids where his office was. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt and Ass were there one Monday morning. He wanted, before we talked, he wanted to show me some videos and magazine articles and, you know, journals about his reputation. Showed me a couple of videos, which there's some of it in Athlete A that made me uncomfortable, bordered on child porn, you know, young girls. Uh, you couldn't see their faces, but you saw their bottoms there in brief underwear. He's rubbing, you know, their buttocks and up between their legs. And, you know, he said, this, you could see how a young woman might misinterpret this. And at one point, you know, when he was, when he was leading the narrative, he was very confident and, you know, like he was in the documentary, you wouldn't understand this. You're not smart enough. You're not a doctor. Like he told Andrew Mumford, the detective. Yeah. And so, but as he was describing this, I asked him, well, why don't you wear gloves? And, you know, he, he started to bat his eyes and, I said, I've talked to a lot of experts in the, the standard procedure for this. You would wear gloves. You'd have another adult in the room. You would tell the young lady before you made a move, explain what you're going to do. Why don't you do any? Well, I, 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 I need gloves. So I can't wear gloves because it impedes my you know, sense of touch. It's very specific in there. And the, inter- the interview was interrupted. I got a text from Marissa that, John Manley had filed this Jamie Dancer lawsuit in California mm-hmm. that morning. And I felt obligated to tell the attorney that a lawsuit had been filed. I probably oh, didn't wow. it journalistically. You're in I, the interview when you found out? Yes. That, I, I told him, I said, hey, I just got this text and, you know, I want you to be aware. I'm not trying to, you know, slip around on you or anything that there's a lawsuit been filed and said, can, can you give me a copy of it? So Marissa emailed a copy to me and I forwarded it to the attorney. They left me alone in the conference room for 15 minutes, read the lawsuit. They came back and they basically entered the interview at that time. The attorney made a couple of statements. As I was leaving, you know, Nasser was pleading almost in tears. You know, you can't write this story. This is going to ruin my life, my family. And, you know, I left there with some conflict in my head because he made a great appeal. He, he does have a family and I'm sure she, his wife and children knew nothing about this. Mm-hmm. We were going to, you know, rip their life apart very soon. And I pulled over into a parking lot of a business nearby and kind of called myself, got my thoughts together and called in and called in what, what he had said. And our story published later that day online. Oh, wow. Shortly after that, he got a new attorney and they stopped making him available for interview. A couple things. The fact that he spoke to you in the first place goes to his arrogance. And, you know, when abusers get away with this over and over, because it's not like people hadn't reported him, they had, and he kept getting away with it. It emboldens them. And I mean, you're right. He was right out there in the, I mean, he's on video, these tender teaching moments or whatever, doing these to these kids. And it doesn't, so, I mean, I guess it kind of doesn't surprise me because the level of arrogance is always so crazy. And then, you know, when he's begging, I remember that part distinctly also during athlete A, when he's begging and pleading with you not to, and you almost, you know, kind of feel sorry for him. And I'm like, well, I'm sure he was sincere because I think he knew the, finally the jig is up, but the level they're so such master manipulators and they use whatever tools and their little toolkit that they think is going to work on each person. You know, Andrea Mumford talked about how he was just very quirky and lots of people were like, do, 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 or whatever, you know? And then he would just throw, just like you said, he would throw around these medical terms that were like big, you know, long words. And so then, well, you wouldn't understand. And, and it's so interesting because I think that the detective said the exact same thing, but once you started asking the questions, then kind of the stammering started and the discomfort and maybe less confidence uh, rather than when he was just kind of given a spiel at the beginning. Shauna, Steve, that arrogance is something that we really were aware of. Uh, one person I ended up 
talking to down in Broward County in Florida is Stacy Honowitz, who really does what you do down there in, in South Florida. And she said that in her years of prosecuting sex crimes, things like that, of that nature, that on occasion, there are false accusations mm -hmm. down there. She said three, maybe 4% is her experience. And in every single one of those cases, that coach or trainer or whoever, they just say, F it. And they're done. They leave. They're like, I don't, I don't need this. This is not something that I need to have, uh, you know, this false thing that could tarnish my record. I didn't do anything, but in the 97%, you know, it's, it's an arrogance and, and willingness to want to stay in this and keeping access to, to their victims. It's a really interesting point. There are some things that you kind of, and you know, these are more anecdotal. This is not something I'm sure it's been studied, but I've not read any studies about this, which is my own personal uh, experience in dealing with these offenders for so long. And there are just some things that kind of seem to be true a lot. And another one that I have noticed a lot is that typically if they did it, they won't call the kid a liar. They'll say they misunderstood or it was an accident or like, no, you know, she's not a liar. She's a good kid, but she must've just misunderstood when I was giving her a bath or whatever it was. You know, like I see that over and over and over and over again. I have one right now where a man uh, molested an autistic boy and he said that he was just trying to teach him how to masturbate. And it's like, what? But he, he's like, well, he didn't lie. He didn't lie. And so it's just really interesting. I think some of the commonalities that you see across a lot with these offenders. One of the things that made this case unique and was a challenge to us and a fear of ours was that because Nasser was a doctor, this was going to be a, end up in court as a battle of expert witnesses. And, you know, it was going to be, he said this, and this is a legitimate. Somebody else says, no, it's not legitimate. And it would all get lost in that kind of mix. And mm -hmm. the fortunate thing in this case was the discovery of the child pornography, because that sealed his fate. He pled guilty to that. And the second thing that came into line was they discovered that he had molested a next door neighbor who was never a gymnast, oh, yeah. who never had any reason to be treated by him. He did it in the basement of his house. Those two factors, absent those, I think there's a good chance that Larry Nasser would have been acquitted in a, in a trial. I think that's extremely difficult for the Joe Schmo on the street to understand, but you're absolutely right that people, jurors, I could go on all day about jurors, but if they're that child porn done, like once they know that done, but up until that point, you know, and strength in numbers too is it's incredibly helpful, which is a horrible thing to say, but when you have multiple victims who come forward and tell the same story, you know, it gives credibility to everyone and it sucks, honestly, because it's like, it has to get to a point where this person has done this to so many different people before other people will believe them. And I think that's an issue we have as a society. I think we're moving in the right direction, but we sure as hell have a long way to go. Absolutely. It's, we're seeing cheerleading and soccer and taekwondo and sport after sport. This problem is sadly, unfortunately, never going to go away. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And why you got to, just like you said, you got to be careful with any type of organization that offers unfettered access to children, because that is an offender's dream. And, you know, that's, I think I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that we can learn from all of this. And one of those things is about grooming and how it's not just the victim that the offender grooms, but it's everybody around them. I mean, look how many times he got reported and it didn't go anywhere because he was this esteemed doctor 
And I mean, I think that we as a society look at doctors as gods in the first place, which I don't understand, but everybody, you know, they do it to everyone. They don't just do it to the kid in terms of grooming. We, we saw a case in Massachusetts. We didn't end up writing about it. And it's probably one of my regrets because it was an egregious story. And, you know, I think we could have helped the victims heal a little bit. Uh, there had been a criminal conviction, but this one young lady, the coach had groomed her. He bought her gifts. He got her a bicycle. He gave her a satin jacket with the gym's name on it. She went through that. She tried to do something and he, he, uh, escaped justice at that point. Later, years later, she was talking, that would have been in the early 90s, years later, she was talking to a friend and found out her friend's daughter was in that same gym or with the same coach. And then the friend's daughter told her, oh, he got her a bicycle. He got her a silk jacket. The same exact thing, same things. And, and that's when the woman said, you know, he did that to me. And we, and that led to charges and he was actually convicted later. But Good. it was just... It was like, it's like there's a playbook out there, like a, a grooming tactics. And we saw it in, in every state. And so many of these coaches did the same thing. And, you know, you just as a parent and, and as an observer, you've got to be aware of those un, untoward things. And in some cases, it was grooming of parents mm -hmm. to get them on the abuser's side. Mm -hmm. So it makes the child's case or accusation less credible uh, in the eyes of the parents, potentially. It's crazy to see. And I can't imagine that woman in Massachusetts, how her heart must have dropped when that little girl told her that it had to have been just like a horrible moment. And I'm so proud of you guys and happy that you did this because the importance of investigative journalism, I think is really highlighted here. Again, I know I keep going back to it, but we wouldn't know. And now, you know, I hate that this happened to all of these women. I hate it but I appreciate that we're taking it and we're trying to learn from it. And hopefully everyone is to know what those red flags are to understand that if you see something, say something, because again, not only at least in the state of Indiana, and as you said, Tim, many other states, we are legally obligated to say something. If you do not report it, you are subject to criminal prosecution. And my God, at the end of the day, it's just the right thing to do. We don't want kids to be abused. And it, I mean, it, it does take all of us to work together and understand what those red flags are and to have the courage to come forward and say something if you see something. I think this came through an athlete A pretty well, but, you know, obviously it's terrible. The sexual abuse is horrible, but many of these athletes and many of the children suffer harm that may be more damaging in the long haul. Some of the emotional, the verbal, the, the yeah. body shaming things that they don't get the help for, you might get as a victim of, of sexual mm -hmm. abuse. And, and it affects our lives, you know, forever it can in some cases. And that's something I you, you don't want to overlook is as terrible as the sexual abuse is, there's other abuse that, that is, does great harm. And you've got to be aware of that as well. Yeah, I think it was Jamie Dancher in Athlete A. She said that she almost felt bad coming forward because Larry was the only one that was nice to them. And I'm like, that goes both to grooming again, because he was so good at it, but also to the overall culture that these kids were subject to. And it's just appalling. Absolutely. One of the women we talked to is the great Dominique Macchiano. Jim and I went to the Cleveland area to speak to her. And she spoke directly about Dr. Larry Nassar giving candy and treats and things like that on the Corolli Ranch of being kind of the good guy who would you know, 
say, okay, I know you're going to have a weigh in, but here's a little extra sweet treat for you because you've been working hard and it's, ugh. It is, right? Oh, it's so hard to sit and listen to. I can imagine having gone through it. You guys may not know this, but has USA Gymnastics changed their ways? Like what's happened in the wake of this? Have they put forth any new, you know, have they done anything? They got rid of the, obviously the administration that was in charge, the entire board of directors, the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee resigned because of this. And I think they've made some steps. You would hear John Manley and the survivors group say that they haven't done nearly enough. They've not fully admitted what's wrong or done a good investigation. Again, they've made some steps, I'm sure. You know, one of the things that's happened in this project is once we got the ball rolling, a lot of other people have done some really great work. The Washington Post, New York Times, the Orange County Register, there's a reporter out there who covers Olympic sports, and he's been covering it more closely in the aftermath. You know, in some ways, I'm kind of a generalist too. Only my, I dive into the topic for six months, a year, year and a half. This was two plus years, but yeah. that's the extraordinary. And then I'm off on another project about nursing homes or I'm real estate scams. So I've not been following it as closely as I have. There's an interesting, uh, USA Gymnastics is in bankruptcy here in uh, federal court in, in Indiana. Mm-hmm. That is in part probably to escape some of their liability or limit their exposure. They're fighting with both the survivors and their insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's happening is attorneys are making millions of dollars, drawing down millions of dollars in the last two years that this has gone on. And the survivors are still waiting for something to help them get the healing that they need. And, um, you know, I think as long as they're in bankruptcy, there's not going to be an agreement on what, how well they've done. They brought in some experts they had a lot of turnover. They, they hired a child abuse expert and she left. I believe they brought in an attorney, a former prosecutor Yep. here in Marion County. And mm-hmm. I think he recently left. He um, did. And so I'm not sure what the culture there is like. And I haven't been close enough to it to, to make it. Unfortunately, I suspect we know because I think that we would know if it had changed. I mean, if you even just go to the website, I was kind of annoyed when I went to the website because I'm like, there's not really much on there. There's like one small thing where you can click on and for like survivors, I'm like, you guys, what you did and what more than that, what you failed to do as an organization for years and years and years led to hundreds, if not thousands of young girls and boys, I'm sure too, to be abused. I think it is so disrespectful of them that they don't have it loud and clear right there when you log on to their website and take some accountability and responsibility for it. I understand that the administration has changed or whatever, but it's still the organization. And just like you guys have talked about, it goes so far beyond the sexual stuff too. The way they treated these kids was abuse, period. One of the odd things that we found as we got into this and we saw the policy, we knew all of these kids had been abused, was USA Gymnastics was held up as a kind of a paragon of child abuse addressing that. And and they certainly claimed and Others believed that they were a leader in the fight against child abuse in, in, in sports. And it was all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. But they had a good PR campaign. They sure did. I mean, these people were revered. The Curl is revered. Steve Penny was revered. Every, what does it? What happened to Steve Penny? Does anybody know? His case is still pending in, in Texas. The last I saw it, it's a minor case. It's a tampering with evidence case. Yeah. And I suspect it'll get pled out or just kind of die a slow death. You're probably right. That's another interesting point. Where all did you guys go? 
I mean, we've already talked about several different states that you've, I mean, you've been all over the country when you were investigating this. Um, I can start Rhode Island to talk to a woman named, last name of Britsky, um, Kaylin, Kaylin Britsky. Went to Florida to talk to several people, went to Georgia uh, to talk to uh, Lisa Ganser uh, over the Bill McCabe case. Went to Michigan, went to Ohio, Missouri, Illinois, states around here. So yeah, that's several. And we had folks in California and Arizona, Tim, oh, Tennessee as well, and Georgia. I think I mentioned that. Tim, where did you go? Kentucky. Yeah, I had actually had a heart attack a few months before this started. I wasn't in a real desire to to travel. So I spent most of my time either in the car, you know, short trips around. Mm -hmm. But Marissa was in California, uh, Arizona. She went to the Crowley Ranch in Texas. We went coast to coast. Bob, you took a kind of, you had a run. Yeah, I was on the road maybe four straight weekends, um, just bouncing from Rhode Island to to Florida, to down to Tennessee and looping around through Georgia. And it was wild how fast this developed. And I feel compelled to definitely pay respects to some of other staffers who helped along the way. Michael McEldowney. Michael McEldowney was a visual journalist at the Star, well, still is a visual journalist at the Star, who did some of the great early work. And Jenna Watson kind of landed the plane with doing some of the courtroom stuff at the trial, at the uh, sentencing for uh, Larry Nasser or the conviction rather. So it was a giant team effort. There were really four folks who were the main focus of Athlete A, but there were so many other people involved from editors to graphic artists like Stephen Beard, who really, really made this thing go. It was, it was a giant team effort. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is how many hands were involved with doing this sort of work. The really takes a village. The star and Gannett, love them, hate them, whatever people do. And there are a lot of mixed feelings about our corporate owners, but they put their money where their mouth was on this project. Great. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in travel and legal fees. We, we took one case to the Georgia Supreme Court twice, one, both times. There was an appeal. We fought it and won again. We fought legal battles here. We fought threatened libel action. And we actually, they cut spending on other departments. Uh, Some sports travel was cut down during that time because they saw the importance of this story and the the value of what we could do in terms of helping people. I can't say it's always that way, but but in this case, you can't say anything, but they stepped up and did the right thing. More power to them for that. Absolutely. And if you're listening to this, subscribe, please. It it (laughs) helps. (laughs) Thank you. It it definitely helps fund, fund good journalism. It's so important. I know I'm thankful that they did because again, where would those women be if they hadn't supported you guys in your endeavor to shine light on this horror? I'm going to ask you one more question that I meant to ask earlier, and then I'll ask you guys if you have any final thoughts, but the timing of this was really interesting because that was an Olympic year, right? We were in the summer Olympics. Do you think that made any difference at all with the organization, the way they reacted to things or the, how anything went down? Was the timing like interesting at all or no? The timing was a, was an issue for us, a problem, actually. And we had this story, and we had our first draft of it probably in June, which was around the time they were getting ready for the national trials. And the last thing we wanted to do was to print this story the day before the Olympics opened, you know, and, and have a huge yeah. controversy and impact the lives of those gymnasts who mm-hmm. 
you know, once every four years, just maybe their one window. Then we got into the fight with the Supreme Court over some records. And at that point, our editor said, when we get a story where we're comfortable, we'll publish it. Well, we got to the story where it was comfortable and published it on August 4th, which was the day before the Olympics opened. And everybody, you know, around the country said, great job, you know, what timing. And I know the reporters and I know Steve Bird, our editor, all had great concerns about that because we didn't want to look like we were capitalizing on that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other side of the coin was we knew that people were, there was abuse. We knew people being abused and to sit on it any longer than we could would put us as as part of the problem. So, you know, it was a delicate dance. And again, it was one that we were not comfortable with. Things blew up immediately. You know, it was on CBS morning and Marissa was all over TV. And the first questions we got were, are any of the current Olympians, were any of the current Olympians molested? At that time, we had no idea. And everybody we were looking at were kids in clubs, you know, local gymnasts, state gymnasts, amateurs. And honestly, we would say, as far as we know, you know, it wasn't. And it turns out that four or five of the 2016 Olympians had been abused. And we didn't even know it at that time. And the fact that they were able to deal with that and perform so well, I think they, they performed at the highest level a U.S. team has ever performed in the Olympics is a testament again to those young women mm-hmm. and, their, and their determination and the fact that, that they had all this going on in the background of their lives is just shocking. You know, I mean, that just makes it even a more amazing feat in my mind. What strength. It's just unbelievable. And so admirable and just in awe of it. Um, we'll go ahead and close it down here. Let's any final parting thoughts, anything else that you think that people should know, Robert, we can start with you. I really have nothing to add except for if you're a young person who wants to get into journalism, please follow that. Please do that. We need good people doing this kind of work. And if you're a survivor, just know that there is someone out there who will listen to your story and will believe you. And if we can at all do that, we can, we can tell that story and try to make a wrong or right. Absolutely. Thank you, Tim. I think three of the sort of unsung heroes of this story are Andrea Mumford, the detective, Angela Povolitis, the prosecutor, and I can't ever pronounce her name, but Rosemary Aquila, I believe, who was the judge. The three of them came together. It was kind of like this convergence because the Me Too movement was just starting to erupt. Mm-hmm. And the judge took the unprecedented step of allowing all of these women to testify. And that day, and it went on for three days, I believe, great mm-hmm. of these just horror stories, got the world's attention more so than our stories had. And it revived our stories. And, you know, then uh, the, the prosecutor made some comment, of, you know, if it not for our reporting, he'd still be down the street molesting little girls. And that kind of brought us our 15 minutes of fame again, our second 15 minutes or whatever. But those three, certainly Angela and Andrea started with a position, I think, there's a really good podcast, and I don't hate to plug the competition. No, there's no competition. It's, it's called, uh, I believe, Believe or Believe by the Michigan Public Radio Reporters. Uh-huh. And Andrea started out with a note to herself the day that she first, I believe, met with Rachel. And it said, believe on it, you know. And she came from that point where I'm not going to doubt him. I'm going to believe him. And, and from that point, you know, that's the perspective you've got to go with when you're dealing with survivors believe them. We talked to hundreds of people who were abused 
And out of that group, there's only one that I really had any question of, not a question that she was abused, at least emotionally, but out of all of those people, there was only one that I had any, the slightest question that they were not telling the truth. And, you know, we, we did research, and I think it's two to 7% roughly or something, mm-hmm. maybe false reports, but you can't risk the harm to so many people by not starting out by believing and then, you know, winnowing out what may or may not be true. Absolutely. Must start by believing. And that needs to be more true of everyone, not just we in either the criminal justice system and civil justice system or within journalism, but just everyone generally, because again, those are jurors. And so I come into the courtroom and I'm just like, oh my God, they lose their minds. But anyway, I'm really, really thankful that you guys were here. I'm going to ask one more question that is completely off topic, but Jamie wants you to answer this, Tim. She wants you to talk about the Indie Star Call for Action and what that is and just what would be beneficial to know. Indie Star Call for Action is a partnership between the Star and Call for Action, which is a national nonprofit. And we have, we're on hiatus now because of the uh, coronavirus, but we have about 15 volunteers who come into the Star office five days a week and take calls from consumers and they're trained in mediation skills and try to mediate resolutions of consumer disputes. Um, Anything from, we we got a lady Walmart to replace a bottle of shampoo that leaked in the lady's bag on the way home. We helped somebody else with a 400 some thousand dollar tax dispute. So, you know, and we, we've saved since 2016. I was just starting this at the same time the, uh, the uh, gymnastics project started. So I had my hands full because it, I spent a few hours every morning with them. And we saved over $1.3 million, either in oh terms of gosh. getting money back or savings or refunds. And it's completely free. It's a hotline and it's kind of my pet project. I've been kind of uh, missing it because we, we, we shut down. We have a couple of people working, but just on kind of simmering ongoing cases. Um, but hopefully we'll get the hotline open when we get the building back open. That's awesome. And I gotta say, I guess, Tim, I'm not, I'm not super surprised you had a heart attack. You had a lot going on back then. My goodness. I think it's more um, I'm fat and I don't eat well. Oh, whatever. Exercise, other than that. <laughs> whatever. Oh my gosh. Thank, thank you guys so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And I think you've shared a lot that people can learn from and you know, more than anything, thank you for what you do, because it is so, so, so important for this information to be brought into people's living rooms, you know, on their phones and people need to know, because if people don't know, then nothing's ever going to change. So thank you so much for coming on. And as always, thank anybody for listening, submit any questions or requests for guests at support for survivors.com. And we will see you next time.